Amen. It is exciting to see. So four of the six are, were under 30. That's good. This is not a safe place for your kids if you want them to be uh, safe and comfortable at home playing video games. We want to see our kids serve the Lord everywhere, all around the world, and uh, jungles, unsafe places. That's exciting. That's beautiful. Uh, if you would, turn with me to Zechariah chapter 12. If you're using the uh, church Bible there in the back of the pews, that's on 798. And as we read this, our outline for today is going to be, notice in verses 1 through 9, look for what God will do for us. He will save us. Notice verses 10 to 14, what God will do in us. He converts us. Then notice verses, chapter 13, verses 1 through 6, what God will do to us. He cleanses us. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 12. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open, and I will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot, in the midst of a wood, like a flaming torch among the sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord shall give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem um, may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. On that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and wept bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning 
for Hadad Rimmon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn. Each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and the wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and the wives themselves, and the family of the house of Levi by itself, and the wives by themselves, and the family of the Shemites by itself, and the wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols of the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I'll remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him though through when he prophesies. On that day, Every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive. But he will say, I am no prophet. I am no worker of the soil. For a man sold me in my youth. And if anyone asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Sends the reading of God's word. What a difference a day makes. In one day, all of history can pivot. On a day, someone is born and they change history. A battle is fought. A battle is won or a battle is lost. All history changes on a day. A discovery is made. Everything changes. What a difference a day makes. As I was thinking about that, I even went through July the 9th. What things happened on this day? Stephen Langton died in 1228 A.D. Stephen Langton first came up with the divisions of Bible chapters. Aren't you thankful for Stephen Langton? You have chapters in your Bible today because of him. Well, he died on that day. 1737, the first Protestant missionaries going to South Africa. Those Moravians get to South Africa. 1776, July the 9th, the Declaration of Independence is read to George Washington's army stationed in New York. What a difference a day makes. 1816, Argentina declares their independence from Spain. 1836, this day, July 9th, Sir Robert Grant wrote, Oh, worship the king. We still sing it to this day. 1870, on this day, Zachary Taylor died. Our own president died only 16 months after being in office. 1914, the Boston Red Sox purchased the contract of a minor league player from Baltimore named Babe Ruth. 
what a difference a day makes. Also negatively, 1934, Heinrich Himmler takes command of the concentration camps in Germany. 1941, the British cryptologists break the Enigma code used by Germany to direct ground-to-air operations in, on the Eastern Front. In 1947, on this date, Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip are engaged. 1955, Bill Haley and the Comets, and their single, Rock Around the Clock, becomes the first rock and roll single to reach number one on the Billboard charts. What a difference a day makes. 1960, the thrash of the first nuclear-powered sub is launched. 1981, on this date, a little company named Nintendo released Donkey Kong. 2017, Elon Musk and Tesla released their first electric car, the Model 3. What a difference a day makes. One day. So many things happened on one day. We have gone through Zechariah. We're continuing to go through the book of Zechariah. And we just finished the second division, the second part of that book. And in the second part of that book, there was a theme, a repeated theme. And you remember that theme was, the Lord is our shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd. He's, he shepherds his people like a shepherd takes care of the flock of sheep. And, and we saw that over and over. And it points us, doesn't it, to the Lord Jesus Christ who lays down his life for the sheep. Well, today we begin the final section of Zechariah, the final chapters. It will go from here to the end of the book. And here again, there is a repeated theme. But here the repeated theme is not that of the good shepherd. The repeated theme, and maybe you even noticed it as we read here, it's on that day, on that day, on that day. Now, Zechariah has a particular day in mind. Uh, matter of fact, it's a particular kind of day. It's on this day in history, a different kind of day, a, a future day. It's prophetic. Now, here's a little caveat. When he writes a day, he is not meaning 24-hour day. And I'm going to show you that. We'll see in this text. Because some of the things that he talks about happens at the cross. Some of the things he's going to talk about happening on that day happens in the wake of Jesus' resurrection and as the Spirit of God is poured out upon the church. Some of the things that he speaks about on that day happens at Christ's final return in glory. So when Zechariah is referring to that day, he's got a particular day in mind, and that day is the, the day of salvation that dawned and the coming, the person, the work of Jesus Christ, and will culminate on that day when Christ comes again. And so you could say right now, we're in the middle of Zechariah's day. But we'll see that. One, two things, I think, help us by understanding what Zechariah is talking about by that day. First off, it gives us really a key, to, interpretive key, that when we look at this text, when we study it, we're going to see that Jesus Christ is the key. 
that it begins at the cross. It begins with his work for his people, and it culminates when he comes again to judge the quick and the dead, that he is the key. The second thing that helps us by understanding that it's this day of salvation that's being presented, this age of salvation, it gives us hope, right? This should give us hope. The time of salvation is now. The day of salvation is now. The time of mercy and grace and blessing, it's now. It's, it's what the prophet here has in mind, and he, he speaks and he exhorts us. And so when we hear it, as long as you're called today, and you hear the Lord's voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not do that, because now is the appointed time. Today is the day of salvation. It also means, not only is this the day of salvation, it also means that it's urgent. Because that is today. Uh, it gives us hope for today, but it is also an urgency with that. Because this hope for today does not stretch on forever. There is hope for today, but it's just a day. Soon, soon there will come, that day will come to a conclusion. Soon that window of opportunity, as it were, closes. The mercy and the, the grace that's extended in Christ Jesus will be a thing of the past. So today, come to Christ. Today, repent, believe in the Savior. Believe the gospel today. Flee to Jesus today. Get serious. Do business with God, your creator, today. Because today is almost over. This window of opportunity is there, but it closes. And so if the Lord would call you today, he calls, that's a hopeful thing. He calls people today. But that hope is a, has urgency behind it because we're here, we're now. We need to do business now because that day eventually comes to an end. So, let's see. First off, verses 1 through 9. What will God do for us? He will save us. Notice. And you keep your Bible open. We could, we'll walk through these passages together. Uh, so verses 1 through 9 describes the people of God in such glorious language it might be hard to stand. I mean, it's almost fantastic, right? So amazing, so expansive how he describes the people of God that before he even does that, Notice verse 1, thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens, founded the earth, formed the spirit of man within him. So before we read the promises of God, Zacharias says, dust off the doctrine of God. Because you're not going to believe these promises unless you know who it is that makes these promises. So let's dust off the doctrine of God before you can have faith believing in the promises of God. You need to understand who it is who is making these promises. You ever struggle believing the promises of God? It may be because your God's too small. That might be the issue there. Uh, there's a measure of reliability of the promise of Scripture towards you. So uh, how much can you trust? Well, it's not so much how much faith 
you have, how strong your faith in those promises are. But do you understand who's making those promises? How great God is. The strength of God who makes those promises. So, so when you hear them, you go, yeah, he can do that. God's the maker of all things, we're told. He is the sovereign Lord. He rules even the hearts of men. That's what Zechariah reminds us of. He speaks reality into being, right? So uh, Hebrews, he sustains all things by the word of his power. The biblical doctrine of God. That is the antidote for doubt and unbelief. You take hold of the doctrine of God, the great doctrine of God, who it is. Who is it that you really worship? We sang, behold, our God. Who is it that you really worship? How great is he? Who is the God that you follow? Who is the God that you serve? Who is the God in whose image you've been made? Who is the God who redeemed you? You dust off the doctrine of God and you see how great and marvelous and glorious he is. You, you get a fresh view of his sovereignty and his power and you will be strengthened against all the attacks of doubt. So, armed with that great view of who God is, look, look at the picture that Zechariah paints of Israel's future. Israel and the people of God, because these promises continue on to the last, the final day. Notice the life of the people of God is set. First off, it's, it's set in this context of terrible struggle. He talks about Jerusalem under siege. He says, verse 2, it's going to be like a cup of staggering. Under siege, but potent, powerful. Ultimately doing what? Ultimately triumphing. He uses these Old Testament images to describe the spiritual conflict that is occurring not only in Israel's past then, but continues to this day. This spiritual conflict that, that's engaging with the people of God. This ongoing hostility. But in this prophecy, God assures his people no matter how hard that conflict is, no matter how hard-pressed they will be by the world's persecution, he's going to make them the instrument of overthrowing the persecutors. And that's so today as well. Romans chapter 16 verse 20 says that the God of peace will soon crush Satan you know where? Under your feet. God is going to use his people in the overthrow of his enemies and your enemies. Even Satan, the God of peace, will soon crush Satan under your feet. And so the prophet here, he, he, he depicts the people of God two ways. A heavy stone. That's the first one, right? This heavy stone, it injures those who try to move it. Notice verse 3. What a beautiful picture of stability, the immovability of the people of God. So, Christian, just wrap your mind around that, right? The church is not just some kind of temporary institution. Uh, 
yeah, we're under threat. I wonder if the church is going to survive. I wonder if the church will survive secularism. I wonder if the church will survive when so many people seem to be disinterested. Who can tell? Who knows if the church is going to survive or not? Well, we're not held together by the ingenuity of men or creativity of leaders. It's not, we don't exist because we stay in the popular and good graces of governments or, or, or individuals. No, the church, God's people, is an immovable rock against which nations will dash themselves. The nations will not survive. You know that? God's people will survive. The nations are going to all go away. The world, even the elements themselves, will melt away on that last day. But the church of Christ will last forever and ever. The church is going to endure forever and ever. Oh, the invincibility of the people of God. Notice verse 6. A different metaphor is used, right? So not an immovable stone, but this time this blazing fire pot used to transfer flames uh, uh, to the hearth here. Or, or like a flaming torch, it ignites all the dry stalks of the harvest. And the whole field just goes up in flames. Their influence is going to spread. But between those two, between the immovable stone and the spreading of the flame, stands the testimony of the people of God. Verse 5. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. God gets the glory, doesn't he? God, yes, Immovable, yes, influence spreading. God gets all the glory. He alone is the strength and the power and the source of their uh, invincibility. Verses 7 and 9, the whole thing is summed up. God brings salvation to his people. Then and now, pay special attention. Look at verse 8. The weakest member of the community, God will make like King David. In the house of David, referring to the, the Davidic king, God will make like God himself, like the angel of the Lord who led Israel out of the bondage in Egypt in the Exodus. Friends, this is a remarkable promise. The weakest will be like David, a man after God's own heart. David's heir, who will sit on the throne, like God himself, bringing a new redemption from slavery. Not, uh, not just Egypt in the past, but now freedom from bondage to sin. Francis Schaeffer said, in the church of Jesus Christ, there are no little people. And that's what Zachariah is saying here. You, Christian, you're going to be like David. A man after God's own heart. One who loves the Lord. Uh, you're going to be heir of the covenant promises of God. We saw it last week. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are kings and priests to serve our God, to declare the praises of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It, ruling us, saving us, delivering us through this new exodus. So who does it? Da great David's greater son, the one who is like God, the angel of the Lord, 
who is God, Jesus Christ himself, the Lord saves his people through the work of Christ. Man, it's a wonderful thing to be in the church of Jesus Christ. You know that? It's wonderful. What a destiny is ours. What a future is ours. The cause of the gospel advances unstopped, unstoppable. Why? Because of the lordship of Jesus Christ. He's our king. So what will he do for us? He will save us. Look at what he'll do in us. Verses 10 to 14. So now the prophet steps back a little. And so the question comes, hey, if the people of God are this, this immovable force, this spreading, uh, uh, invincible, victorious body, if the church is going to exist forever, here's the question, how? How can I join the church? How can I be one of God's people? How can I join the family of God if this is what they look at? How will God take Hearts that are prone to worship idols. People who, who, who uh, they are living in the land of Judah, these returned exiles, but continuing to worship other gods. Or, like you and me, how can he take idol-prone hearts like ours and change them to be victorious like this? How can that be? What's that look like? Well, Look at verses 10 to 14. This is what God will do in us. We're told, first off, here's how God will work. Verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit. Now, I'll pause there. You probably have small s. I infer to you it would be better to have a capital S, depending on what translation you have here. But it's the spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. The church is birthed by the spirit of God. We enter into the benefits of salvation. How? We must first become the subjects of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The spirit comes. He, he causes us to be brought in union with Christ. The spirit comes. He convicts us of our sin. The spirit comes opens our eyes. We see ourselves as sinners and we cry out for mercy. The Spirit does this. These two phrases, grace and pleas for mercy. Zachariah says that is what God's Spirit does. He is the one who gives grace and he generates in our hearts cries for mercy, cries for grace. So both the reality and the longing are products of the Spirit of God at work in us. And this is vital. So I, all, all of us, we need to understand that our cries for grace, that's not what starts God's work in your heart. Your cries for mercy are evidence that God is at work in your heart. The fruit of the Spirit of God, his powerful ministry in you, looks like cries for mercy. Why? Because it is the Spirit who convinces men of sin and righteousness and judgment. It's the Spirit that brings that conviction. Our repentance, our faith, every subsequent cry of our hearts 
ultimately the source of it, the spring of it, not from ourselves. It is from God. He is working in us. God saves sinners, and he does it how? By the work of the Spirit of grace and supplication. When the Spirit comes and we, we see ourselves as sinners, what do we do then? We cry out in faith for a Savior. This is also what happens when God revives his church. You understand? He brings this renewed penitence and power. It's this pouring out of the Spirit of God, of grace and supplication. And brothers and sisters, we pray for this. We need this. If you're stiff in your chair and cold towards the things of God, it does not begin with doing. It begins with pleas for mercy and grace. Old preacher defined revival as when Christians repent of their sins as though they had never been saved. This is the Spirit of God at work among us. It's the fresh effusion of the spirit of grace and supplication. And there's no mechanics. There's no uh, 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 methods. We can't produce this. We can't uh, uh, cause this to come into to being. No, it is the work of God among us. Sometimes that work is seen and, and there's numerical growth, but there's difference. It's not always that. Sometimes they accompany one another. The Spirit of God working in revival and numerical growth, but it doesn't always happen. Do not confuse the two things. Resist it all, all the temptation that, oh, well, this, this church does this, and, and they were really blessed, and they, it seems to be what's doing. Because maybe that's what I have to do. No. Look where, you, you want to know the secret here? Where does it come from? Where does revival in our hearts come from? Not from programs. Look where Zechariah points us. To God alone to give us a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit of grace and pleas of mercy. That's what we need in this age. That's what we need today. That's what Emmanuel Baptist needs. That's what, if you're lost in your sins today, that's what you need. The first evidence of the renewed work of the Holy Spirit is this rising, swelling, persistent cry from the congregation that God would give us more of Christ in his word, more of Christ in his means of grace, more of the mighty operations of the Holy Spirit in our hearts that our hardness, our coldness, our deadness would be set aflame and that we would live for the honor of Christ's name. Notice who's speaking. Do you notice? So this whole time, uh, all the way back, um, in verse 1, thus declares the Lord. So who's speaking? The Lord is speaking. Well, look at verse 10. If it's the Lord is speaking, that means the one who says in verse 10, when the spirit of grace and supplication is being poured out, what will happen? They will look on me whom they have pierced. How can that happen? How can Almighty God be pierced? God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. So how can 
the Lord be pierced. It is only in the crucified Christ. It is only at the cross of Christ can Almighty God incarnate be pierced for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. That's why the Roman soldier pierces the side of Christ on the cross. Matter of fact, John 19, 37, he quotes this verse, Zechariah 12, 10, is that that was fulfilled in Jesus' piercing. The Son of God, God incarnate, pierced. The second person of the triune God, pierced. But Zechariah is not so much concerned with how or the manner of the crucifixion, but what's your response to the crucifixion? You notice that? What's, what's the response? How will they respond? How will they look upon the incarnate God, pierced for sinners? They're going to look on him in a new way. They can no longer, they can't go to the cross and just ignore the cross as something dull or something uh, that eh, doesn't really matter. They can't dismiss the crucified, pierced Jesus as irrelevant. They will do what? They will mourn. They will look on him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn. Why? Because they don't just see the fact of the cross. They see their own uh, um, uh, complicity in the cross. They see their part in what's going on. That's what happens in, in Acts chapter 2, isn't it? Remember, Peter, Peter is preaching. He stands up. He preaches Christ crucified, and the Spirit of God is at work. And what happens in the crowd? says they're cut to the heart. They're cut to the heart. And then what do they mourn and what do they cry out? What was, must we do to be saved? That's what Zachariah is talking about. They saw Christ crucified and this new light. They, they saw their complicity in nailing him to a tree. They saw their part and their sin actually required this horrible death. The death of the God-man. And they're cut to the heart. Friend, do you know anything what it is to be cut to the heart? To cry out as you see the reality of your sin. Can you say with the hymn writer, Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Zechariah here describes the cry of the repentant heart. It's, it's, it's the spirit of grace and supplication brings conviction. It brings that. Notice, too, what's this morning look like? It's intense, isn't it? That's the point of the end of verse 10 there. It's the morning like somebody has lost their firstborn child. Your child has passed away. Imagine the mourning, the wailing, the crying. That's the, how intense conviction of sin is. And notice it's universal. It goes from society to society. So imagine from royalty down to the most common person. Every person in this society, all of them has this conviction. Conviction of sin is a universal reality in the heart of the Christian. True conversion is never just a matter of intellectual persuasion. 
If all you have done is been persuaded that it's true, you have not been converted. You have it. I know the, the ABCs of the gospel says admit, believe, confess. But if all you do is admit it, you haven't been... I, I can persuade you that it's true, but that does not mean that it's true for you. There must be, and this is an element that we do not give attention to. There must be not just mental assent. There has to be heart work done. There has to be this conviction of sin. Do you see your sin on the Savior's shoulders? And you cry out for mercy. I, not only to be saved, but that's what revival looks like. This new awareness that it was our sin, that he dies in our place. That's what God does for us. He saves us. And this is what God does in us. He converts us. Look at what God does to us. The last thing. Verses 1 through 6 of 13. Two aspects. Individual and corporate. Notice the individual aspect. Verse 1. On that day there will be a fountain opened for David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. So here, described in the water purification rituals of the Old Testament, is the message I hope is clear, crystal clear. Because of a pierced, sin-bearing Savior, sinners can be made clean. There's a fountain that will cleanse you from sin and uncleanliness. Because of Jesus, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners that are plunged beneath that flood, they lose all their guilty stains. And some of you have never come to that fountain. You're still in your sins. You've never come to Jesus to make you clean. Understand, if that's you, uh, you're like uh, Lady, Lady Macbeth. Remember Shakespeare's Lady Macbeth? When uh, Macbeth and uh, Lady Macbeth, they plot and they kill the king of Scotland. And then she's up, she's sleepwalking, and she can't sleep. And she's straining her hands. And remember, she can't get her hands clean. Remember, out damn spot. And she can't clean the spots off of her hands. That's you. If you're not a Christian, you can't clean your own spots. You can't remove the stain from your own heart. You can't get clean. But there is a fountain that is open for sin and uncleanliness. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sin, he's faithful, he's just to cleanse us, forgive us our sin, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is the propitiation for our sin, and not our sin only, but the sin of the whole world. So there is room for you in the wounds of Jesus Christ. Stop trying to fix it yourself. Flee to Christ. Only he can rescue you. And there's others here. And you have come to Christ. And, and you have been forgiven. And you have been cleansed. All your sins have been washed away. But you refuse to believe it. <laughs> you refuse to believe it. You, and I, I just clear, it's always right to be ashamed of sin. As a matter of fact, if you're a Christian and you're not ashamed of your sin, I'd be fearful. 
if you say that's you, but you don't hate your sin, I'd be fearful. But friends, when you confess your sin and you mourn over it and you take it to Jesus and you, he washes your sins clean, some of us have the hardest time believing the gospel that he really can make the foulest person clean. Some of us have a hard time believing that. And I want to say with all love and all care as one of your pastors, that's not humility. That's not humility that refuses to believe it. It's not godliness. That's unbelief. You refuse to believe that Christ could actually cleanse you. Christ promises to make you clean. Flee to him for grace. Receive the promise of the gospel. Live for his glory, not in shame of a past, but in new obedience out of a grateful heart. Because, live with joy because he has saved you and washed you clean. Then the corporate dimension, verses 2 to 6. Notice this, this cleansing doesn't just deal with our own personal hearts. It deals with the community. So the, the, the Lord cleanses the people from idols and false prophets. Idols have to go. False prophets. Those spiritual powers behind those, those, those false prophets. The spirits of uncleanness. They have to go. There is this renew and this re revival in the church. And, and there's all the hostile environment from false teachers and false teaching. Nowhere for it now. The people of God, there's a zero-tolerance policy for error in, in the people of God. Even, notice verse 3, the parents of the false prophets, they won't tolerate it. <laughs> they won't even tolerate though it's their own children. Verse 5, uh, the, everyone, the, they come up with all lame excuses to avoid being found out of their own sin. Notice uh, verse 6, those pagan worshipers, all sorts of self-harm. Uh, they will do anything to explain away the wounds that they had received. Friends, what a difference a day makes. And ultimately, that day is coming. It's not here yet. It is coming. We're told that in the new Jerusalem, nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will there be anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Outside, there are dogs, there are those who practice magic arts, sexual immorality, the murderers, the idolaters, everyone who practices falsehood, they're going to be outside. But inside, only the people of God. One day soon, not just our hearts are going to be completely clean, but our whole community is going to be made perfectly holy. Isn't that great? Sin's going to go. Idolatry's going to go. False teaching go. The church militant will become the church triumphant. Until then, until that day, remember this. We're in a process. We are growing in sanctification. We hold these two tensions in reality. One hand, we are called to holiness personally and corporately. That's what we're called to, and we pursue it with vigor. So church discipline is a command, not a recommendation. Sanctification is an obligation, not a suggestion. He doesn't suggest that we grow. No, it's an obligation. And on the other hand, the other side of that tension, is we grow in personal holiness, we have a growing patience, don't we, with other people who are at different stages in that process. Because the church ain't what she will be. But one day we will be. One day we will be. We're not there yet. 
but we will be. For we are, we could put it on the back wall, under construction. But one day, it'll be finished. One day, wonderfully soon, that work will be complete, and sin will be gone, and Christ will have perfect supremacy among us. Let's pray for it. Let's long for it. Let's pursue it. Let's stand. And uh, I'll pray, and we're going to sing, There is a fountain filled with blood. Lord, we praise you, for you are great and glorious. You have saved us through the blood of Jesus, our Savior. You, is, you have poured out your spirit in our hearts. So, Lord, as we go forward and we take this glorious, conquering gospel to the nations, we also preach it in our own hearts day by day. And we long for the day of Christ appearing when it will all be right. And we will no longer struggle. And in this, not only in our own hearts personally, but in this community, this, the people of God, there will no longer be a place for sin or idols or falsehood. And we pray with John, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.